Welcome to Green and Gold Forever. I'm Eric Drews, broadcasting from Appleton, Wisconsin, and I am flying solo this evening as uh, Matt has some other obligations. So it's probably going to be a short show in part because Matt is not here, but also because this was a relatively routine game and thankfully a routine victory for the Green Bay Packers, defeating the visiting St. Louis Rams by a final score of 24 to 10. A very interesting game in that there seems to be a lot of angst amongst many Packer fans about the performance of the offense, how they've continued to struggle, how the Rams came very close to winning it if you look at some of the missed opportunities they've had. But I am looking at it, surprisingly, a bit more optimistic than that. And all week we heard about the way the Rams were going to defeat the Packers at Lambeau Field is they had to have Todd Gurley have a huge game. They had to have Aaron Rodgers not be up to his usual self. They had to put a lot of pressure on him. They had to slow down Eddie Lacy maybe make a play or two on special teams, and then maybe they would be able to win. And the thing is, all of that happened. Todd Gurley had a huge game yesterday, even bigger than he had in Arizona. I believe it was uh, 159 yards rushing on 30 attempts. They had a fake punt that was successful. They dominated the time of possession, having over seven minutes more than the Green Bay Packers. They had more first downs. But at the end of the day, they lost by two touchdowns. Aaron Rodgers didn't play good. He had three turnovers, and the Packers still won by two touchdowns. I'm looking at that as a major victory for this team, and it's helping me feel even better about this team, believe it or not. This is not going to be a game that's going to look great in the highlights, and if you try to condense it down into a 90-second highlight package, it looks like, well, Todd Gurley ran all over the Packers, the Rams screwed up a bunch, Aaron Rodgers didn't play very well, and the Packers somehow won. If you actually watch the game, that Packers defense was relentless. That front seven, completely disruptive. Nick Foles threw four interceptions, but it wasn't like the Jay Cutler interceptions we've seen over the years where he just stands back there and waits three seconds or five, ten seconds and then throws it to a wide-open Packers defender. All of those were contested throws. He had to throw into coverage. He had to throw on pre- under pressure. The Packers' pass rush was unbelievable, and they earned those interceptions. Those were contested plays, and I think the defense was spectacular. And this is the type of game that the Packers have lost in recent years. This defense would have beaten the Buffalo Bills last year, and this defense would have beaten the Seattle Seahawks last year. It's encouraging. It's incredibly early. They have a long way to go before they get to the playoffs, and a lot of things can happen. But right now, this defense looks really, really good, and I'm pretty excited about it. Other things that happened yesterday, uh, Aaron Rodgers finally broke his interception streak. It was at 580, I believe, was, was the ending. He ended up throwing a second interception six throws later, which is is kind of interesting. But, you know, streaks are made to be broken, and that's an incredible streak. To not throw an interception in a, in a building for three years is just something that is not sustainable. And if anything, now maybe it'll be off his mind a little bit, and he doesn't have to be so concerned with it. The fact that it came on a tipped pass and then a, a fingertip catch right above the ground is pretty much the perfect way to end it. It, was, uh, it wasn't like a, a throw to a wide-open defender or he misread a, a zone blitz or something like that. It was pretty much the only way Aaron Rodgers throws interceptions, and that's with spectacular plays from the defense. And that's what we saw yesterday. So sad to see it end. It would have been fun to see it continue. And uh, you know now he's got a couple interceptions on the season, but 
really, it was bound to happen. And Aaron did struggle yesterday. He he had the one long pass to James Jones, and he had a, the nice read of the blown coverage to Ty Montgomery for another touchdown. He still had an 80-something passer rating, but this is another week where the team was slowed down. The offense is not clicking quite like we're expecting. Is help on the way? That's the big question right now. And to tell you the truth, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. But again, if this defense can continue, the Packers haven't won many games like they won yesterday in recent years. The The year that sticks out where they won a lot of these types of games was 2010. And Aaron Rodgers is a great, great player, and he's carried the Packers to most of their success in recent years. But if you think of 2010, they were winning games. Look at the playoffs. They won their wild card game 21 to 16. They won the NFC Championship game 21 to 14 in a game in which Aaron Rodgers had a terrible game. He had that memorable game, one of the best quarterback performances ever in the divisional round, and he played very well in the Super Bowl. But if he has the 2011, 12, or 13 defense in Philadelphia or Chicago, they lose. And so it's got to be a whole team effort. And. This team looks like it has the makings of that type of team. Now, I'm sure there'll be some flaws that emerge as the season goes on, but so far, so good for the Packers, I would say. So the Rams, I thought, were pretty impressive, but they're still a Jeff Fisher team. I joked on Twitter that it seemed like towards the end of the game that they were trying to kill the clock in an effort to be ultra-conservative and preserve a two-score loss instead of a three- or four-score loss like maybe some people expected at the hand of the Packers. But their passing game wasn't working. Todd Gurley was. This guy is very impressive. And at the draft, I thought that the Rams had made a mistake selecting him over Melvin Gordon. I thought Melvin Gordon had been the better college back. But Todd Gurley, it's two games, but very Adrian Peterson-like, where uh, the first two games that he's healthy, he has monster, monster games. And now we'll see Melvin Gordon up close and personal on Sunday, and we'll see if he can replicate that. And uh, it's possible just uh, with the way the Packers run defense has been playing. But again, I think those stats are a little bit uh, inflated. Looking at the stats, you would think that the Packers run defense got gashed. If you actually watch the game, it felt like they contained Gurley pretty well, as as much as you can contain somebody who rushes for 159 yards. But it was a couple of really big bursts, but for the most part, they kept him in check. And yesterday was a reflection again that the running back really doesn't matter that much in the NFL. If you're playing a team with a good quarterback and you're playing a team that has an explosive offense, you can, I mean, 159 yards rushing and it produced 10 points for the Rams. So if you're going to be bad somewhere, um, it, it it's never great to be bad, that bad against the run, but I don't think it's this huge glaring problem. It's not 1976 anymore. So you can win in spite of a bad rushing defense, especially when you have a pass defense as devastating as the Packers. And so hopefully they can improve it as it goes on, but uh, you know maybe Todd Gurley just is that good, and we'll just have to see. All right, I don't have a ton else to say about this game. It's really hard doing a podcast all by yourself, but uh, Matt and I will make our picks on the Facebook page a little closer to the um, the, the games next week. But I reached out to all of you and asked if uh, you would provide me some topics, and a couple of you responded, which I greatly appreciate. If you listen to this, I'm recording this just after 6 o'clock Central Time, so if you post something after that, before the episode is posted, I apologize, but uh, I'm not a time traveler yet, so I'm only able to read what's in front of me right now. So Daniel Johnson offered up some topics that we could talk about, and I greatly appreciate it. He sent me 11 Uh, He said, 
It's a big list. I hope it helps. It helps tremendously, Daniel, so I appreciate it. Number one, how big of a deal is it that Aaron Rodgers threw two interceptions yesterday? Uh, um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It is interesting, though, that he hardly ever throws interceptions, but the last four games in which he's thrown an interception, he's thrown multiple interceptions. He threw two yesterday, he threw two in the NFC Championship game, he threw two in Buffalo, and he threw two in New Orleans. So there's a lot of games in between those games, so it's it's not like a chronic problem. He's not turning into... 2005 Brett Favre anytime soon but it's just kind of an interesting statistical tidbit and it makes me wonder if that's just part of Rogers makeup at this point where he's so bothered by throwing interceptions that he gets a little bit rattled and he comes off of his game a little bit he expects himself to be perfect and when he's not I think it takes him a minute to get out of it and he's certainly recovered and he threw the really nice touchdown to James Jones but it it felt like he held back a little bit at that point partially I think because he felt like his defense had things in control and he didn't have to take chances so it's a credit to him for that he also ran a lot yesterday and was very effective running the ball and it's just another illustration of how Aaron Rodgers is such a dynamic quarterback. He had eight carries for 39 yards yesterday. You don't want your franchise quarterback having eight carries, but the fact that he was struggling a little bit from the pocket and was feeling the pass rush, and he was still able to get eight carries for 39 yards, pick up some big first downs, shows how well-rounded this guy is. I don't think it's going to be a chronic problem, but I think uh, it's one of two. Th- or it, it's two things. Two interceptions uh, Rodgers having yesterday proves is that St. Louis has a pretty good defense, especially up front. They're going to force you into some mistakes. And the other one is that the Packers offense isn't the offense that we remember right now. Hopefully help is on the way with Devontae Adams. But again, people are expecting uh, – I'm saying people in this sense that – I don't know who is expecting it, but I get a sense that people are expecting Adams to come back and fix the offense, and I don't think that's going to happen. He has a lot of the skills that Jordy Nelson has. He has a lot of the physical makeup that Jordy Nelson has, but he's not Jordy Nelson. We've talked about that often on this show where Devontae Adams, a lot of excitement is around him, and they should have excitement. He's a, a young player with a lot of potential. But from a production standpoint, he's never quite been there yet. Last year, he had 466 yards. Jarrett Boykin in 2013, who nobody um, thinks of as this great season, had almost 700 yards. So it would be foolish to expect him to come in and be this giant contributor. contributor. It certainly could happen, but I don't know if that's a reasonable expectation, especially right away. He's still you know, he's had his great rookie season and he's hardly played since then. So we'll see what happens. Other than that, it would be nice to see them give chances to guys like Jared Aberderis. Jeff Janis is so weird. That play he made on the punt yesterday where it seemed like an automatic touchback and he just ran down there a million miles an hour and screwed it up. I believe I've said it several times on this show, but he reminds me so much of 1997 Bill Schrader where physically he looks like a really good player, and he should be able to to get some separation and get open. But then he makes so many boneheaded plays, not only on special teams, but on offense. And you start to understand why the coaching staff and the quarterback doesn't really trust this guy. And that seems unfair to make that kind of assessment after a play like that, downing it at the one-yard line. But you see that from Janice a lot, where it's just kind of iffy... Um, he he almost gets too eager and excited and doesn't quite make the right choices. But I don't think they've given up on him yet, and I think it would be foolish to do so. So we'll see if they start trying to incorporate him because 
Um, I think it's clear they need to try some new things. Not drastically, but they need to try some new things. And also with San Diego, there might be a potential to have an offensive explosion uh, because San Diego is not the greatest of defenses. Certainly a step down from the two that they just recently faced. So, Daniel, it's going to take me four and a half hours to get through all of your list here if I keep talking like this. But uh, we got time, so let's keep going. Best game from yesterday. Well, from what I saw yesterday, I think uh, I didn't have a chance to watch the Red Zone channel on one of my other TVs down in, in my basement like I normally did. We just got a dog yesterday, so we, are, we spent a lot of our time doing that. The Bengals and Seahawks, Seattle blowing a huge lead. Uh, that's certainly something new for that defense and probably rattles their confidence a bit and really uh, improves the Bengals' confidence. I would like to see more of that game. Falcons and Redskins didn't look the greatest. I think the best game from yesterday was probably Giants 49ers, but I'm such an old man now, I didn't stay up to see the end of it. I saw the score off my phone, and I have it on the DVR, so I'll maybe eventually get to it, but yeah, that's how sick I am and obsessed with football. I actually DVR'd that Giants 49ers game yesterday. I don't know what the heck I'm thinking. But it sounds like I missed quite an ending. But again, ugh, I, by Sunday night, that game takes forever to get started. It almost goes to 11 o'clock every night or every week. I just, I'm a little OD'd on football by then. Especially if you're a college football fan, you watch 100 games on Sunday or on Saturday. By Sunday night, I'm just... I just want to watch something else. So maybe the best game this weekend was the Badgers defeating Nebraska, or at least the best ending. I shouldn't say that. It was exciting for the Badgers to beat Nebraska, but that game pretty much stunk up until the fourth quarter. The It was it was pretty boring, but that was an exciting win for the Badgers. 2016 Hall of Fame nominees, who gets in besides Favre? I think it would be a shame if Terrell Owens doesn't get in. Uh, it'll be interesting to see because he had always an adversarial relationship with the media, but he certainly has the credentials to be in there. And if you've ever, if you've followed our show for a long time, we always talk about dominance more than statistics, especially in the modern era where everybody has statistics. And Terrell Owens was legitimately the best receiver in the NFL for at least a few years in the mid 2000s. And he would have gone down as an absolute Super Bowl legend if the Eagles were able to beat the Patriots in Super Bowl 39, playing on what was a surgically repaired leg way before anybody expect him to, uh, expected him to. He had a huge game against a really, really good defense. A lot of people forget that stuff because they were on the losing end of it, and that's just kind of the way things go. But I think that he deserves to get in. There's some other interesting names for the modern era nominees as far as the classic era nominees, I, I guess I don't really know. It's such a large pool to select from. I, I saw you had Jerry Kramer later on the list. I certainly hope he gets in. I don't know what it's going to take because the body of work has been complete for four decades, and I don't think there's any groundswell to put more Packers in the Hall of Fame because there's so many of them in there already. He certainly deserves it, but I'm fearing that the groundswell is not going to develop until, uh, unfortunately, Jerry Kramer's not here to accept the nomination, uh, which is unfortunate, and hopefully that is not the case, but that's kind of how I'm thinking right now. There's some interesting names on the list. Sterling Sharp, I still hope he gets in eventually. A lot of those 2000s running backs, 
that were really good. Sean Alexander, Tiki Barber, Stephen Davis, Eddie George, Priest Holmes, Edron James, Clinton Portis, Jamal Lewis, all of those guys, and Brian, uh, Brian Westbrook is a first-year eligible guy. All of those guys were really good. And if you watched football in that era, they were all really good players, but they're all kind of the same level guys, not quite that next level guy. They had their own unique skill sets, and I don't know, maybe the best of that bunch is, well, Sean Alexander had that most dominant season. I would say maybe him. Tiki Barber was really weird where he was a late bloomer, and he was probably at his best right when he retired. He was in the league for a long time, and all anybody knew about him was that he was a fumbler, and then he started playing really well in his last three or four seasons. Uh, Terrell Davis is still on the uh, available. I still think that that guy belongs in the Hall of Fame just with how impressive he was for those four peak years. He really did it all in about four years, so I think that he should get strong consideration. Unfortunately, I don't think any of those other guys really deserve to get in. I was on the fence about Jerome Bettis getting in, and he's better than any of those guys. Same with Curtis Martin. Marvin Harrison. See, here you have the super logjam at wide receiver. You have Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Marvin Harrison and Jimmy Smith. Uh, Rod Smith is on the list. I think the same thing with like Kurt Warner is that if you put in Terrell Owens, it would be hard to put in any of those other guys at the same time. Maybe Marvin Harrison. I think that Terrell Owens is a level above Marvin Harrison just because he was so successful with so many different quarterbacks. But I don't know. I don't know how you could put in Jimmy Smith or Torrey Holt the same year you're putting in Terrell Owens because you naturally compare the two guys, and Owens just looks so much better. And I don't have his statistics in front of me. I know those guys had a lot of stats, but was there anybody shaking in their boots to play Mark Bolger and the Rams because Torrey Holt was there? No. But you were terrified to play the Eagles with Terrell Owens and the Cowboys with Terrell Owens and San Francisco with Terrell Owens. And the same goes for guys like Jimmy Smith and Isaac Bruce. Henry Ellard is on that list, and he's another guy. that were They were really good. But it was more, you didn't notice how good they were until the game was over. You didn't spend your week worrying about how good they were. Uh, I'm not going to really comment on offensive linemen. It's it's hard to say with those guys. Uh, none of the really the defensive guys stand out, other than you're starting to see more and more of the players from the New England dynasty starting to show up in eligibility. Mike Vrabel is a first-time eligible player. But now you have Vrabel, you have Willie McGinnis, you have Lawyer Malloy, you have Ty Law, Rodney Harrison, all of those guys from those Patriot championship teams. I am interested to see how the voters are going to select those guys because you tend to see a lot of dynasty players go in. But I think those guys were not even to the celebrity that many of the early 90s Cowboys were, and a lot of those guys aren't in yet. So... I don't know. You feel like they should have some representation in the Hall of Fame just because of how good they were, but I can't think of any individual that should go in. I mean, the most visible of the Patriots defensive players was probably Teddy Bruschi, uh, who's eligible, but I don't think he's a Hall of Fame caliber player. Rodney Harrison maybe should go in. Ty Law was pretty good, but you start thinking about guys who they're going to compete with. You know, if Ty Law doesn't get in soon, he's going to start getting compared to Champ Bailey and then eventually Charles Woodson, and he's a class below those guys. So that's probably the most interesting thing. And now you're starting to get the last thing I'll talk about on this subject is 
they're really starting to get a log jam at the coach position. So Don Coryell's been close the last couple of years, but now you have Cower and Dungey and Tom Flores, who won two Super Bowls but otherwise had some iffy years. You have Marty Schottenheimer, Holmgren, Jimmy Johnson. Pretty soon you'll have Mike Shanahan on that list. Trying to decide which of those guys gets in, I don't know. I sense Tony Dungy will get in because he's on TV. Then Bill Cower will probably get in because he's in, on TV too. I think Jimmy Johnson, though, has been on TV for 20 years uh, outside of that little stint with the Dolphins, and he's not in yet. You would think some of those guys got to get in, but who? I don't know because I don't know if you, if you allow some of those border, if you allow Dan Fouts to get into the Hall of Fame as a quarterback, and I love Dan Fouts, but then he's basically the uh, I don't know the the Marty Schottenheimer of quarterbacks. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with coaches coming up. Okay, what's up with the Saints? They stink. They've stunk last year. Their offense is clearly broken, and they have never quite been as dominant as those other really successful teams. They seem to flip-flop between really good years and really bad years, and so I just think that it's run its course with Breeze and Sean Payton. And they lost a lot of guys, and I I don't think they're going to get any better. Should Dallas go to Matt Castle? Uh, Maybe. I guess they may as well give it a try. Brandon Whedon's lost 11 straight starts now, which is really hard to do in the NFL, but he hasn't played that badly either. His quarterback rating is about the same as Tony Romo's was. He's got a similar yards per carry, or I'm I'm sorry, yards per attempt. He played poorly yesterday, but I don't know. That Atlanta game surely wasn't his fault, and that's the big thing about Brandon Whedon is he's not playing like Billy Volick for the 2004 or 2004 Titans where he's just putting up enormous numbers and they're losing anyways. He's certainly sharing the blame in their losses and he only scores 6 points, but they lost to the Saints 26 to 20 where he didn't even get the ball in overtime. Then they lost to the Falcons 39 to 28. Here is the big difference. When they were 2 and 0, they gave up 289 yards of offense to the Giants and 226 yards to the Eagles. Then they went 2-0. Since Whedon's been in the games, they've given up 438 yards to both the Falcons and Saints, and they gave up 356 yards to the, to the Patriots. And their offensive production, with the exception of yesterday, has been pretty similar to what it was when Tony Romo was there. So maybe try Castle, but I don't necessarily think Whedon's the problem. I think that defense had a two-week spurt against two iffy opponents and have been exposed as not that good in the last couple of weeks. So uh, not his fault, I would say. What was up with the 1999 Jaguars losing only to the Titans? I wish I knew. That's uh, Watching those games are on my to-do list, so I'll be able to comment on that more intelligently somewhere down the road. But it's one of my favorite quirks in the history of the NFL that the, that the Jacksonville Jaguars were 15-0 against the rest of the NFL and 0-3 against the Tennessee Titans. They're all low-scoring games. I have to watch those games again. Maybe it's just something in the way those two teams play. But it, it really is weird. And, and again, I think maybe that the Jaguars weren't necessarily as good as their record. They had the best defense in the NFL. I think they gave up like 11 points a game. But 1999 through 2001, especially in that division, cannot be trusted statistically because they played 10 games against their division, and that AFC Central was terrible in those three years. So you could really inflate your stats on a really bad expansion Cleveland game uh, team and a terrible um, Cincinnati team. 
You also had the Ravens, who in 99 weren't very good, but the Steelers in 99 and 2000 had two of their weaker teams under Bill Cowher. So it's weird. I need to watch those games. But yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because that's the kind of stuff we like to dig into on Green and Gold Forever. I'll answer that better someday down the road. DraftKings and FanDuel commercials. Is it too much? I watch early games only through Red Zone Channel just to avoid them. Yes, it's too much. So much so that it's gotten the attention of the U.S. Congress and it might put an end to daily fantasy games somewhere down the road. I'm sure they'll survive. There's just too much money in it. And the NFL says they don't really care, but I I don't necessarily buy that. I think they definitely care because Yahoo Sports is starting to... Uh, put their toe in the water testing daily fantasy games. So there's a lot of money to be made here. So I'm sure it'll survive. It's too much. It annoys me to no end. Daniel, you've been one of our most loyal longtime fans. I'm sure you know how much I am irritated by fantasy football despite being a reluctant participant in fantasy football. But uh, yeah, it's. I hope somehow that gets drawn in a little bit because it's ridiculous to the point where CBS sports is having fan duel statistics at the beginning of games rather than breaking down some of the trends you should watch for in the game. It drives me nuts, but it is what it is. And I'm sure it'll only get worse as time goes by. What makes a quarterback a bust? Is there a time you have to wait before declaring one a bust? Who I like these questions, Daniel, cause they're really making me think, but I, I don't know. I think you need time. Each case is different. Um, I'm not ready to say RG3 is a bust. He has struggled, and he hasn't been great, but I've also never seen a quarterback have to play in such a hostile environment before. But again, if you think of guys like RG3, and you think of what, like Ryan Leaf was terrible who of the bust quarterbacks really got a raw deal, I guess? I'm trying to think of who the best quarterback is who was labeled a bust and maybe resurrected themselves. Um, you guys are going to have to help me out in the comments after this episode, but maybe Vinny Testaverde, he was terrible in Tampa, but he'd show flashes of being really good and then kind of fall back, and he never quite got out of that, except instead of doing it on a game-by-game basis later in his career, he did it on a season-by-season basis. He was awesome in 96 in the first year for the, a really bad Ravens team. Obviously, everybody knows about the Jets season where he was really good in 1998. I guess he's the closest to come back from bust status, but I don't remember enough about back then if he was really given the bust title. Other guys like Rick Meyer were a bust and proved that to be completely correct. Um, then you have the epic ones like uh, Jermarcus Russell. Um, I don't know. I think what makes a quarterback a bust maybe is they just have years and years where they never elevate their play. You... Like, Joey Harrington seems to be the perfect bust where he passes the eye test on some weeks, but he never quite can get to that next level. The same with David Carr. I think those guys are better than some of your epic, colossal Ryan Leaf busts, but they just never elevate their game to the next level. And I think both of those guys were given sufficient time. They did it with different coaching staffs in different... uh, I don't think David Carr ever got a true opportunity outside of Houston, but Joey Harrington did. Um, He had a little stint with the... Dolphins and then with the Falcons and it never quite worked out so I think time you got to give them you got to give more than a couple of years 
Alex Smith maybe looked like a really bad bust and, and resurrected himself as well. But again, he, he, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think it, 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 this sounds really stupid because we're such a stat-based show. Your eyes will tell you if a guy is a bust. I think it was clear by about halfway through 1999 that Ryan Leaf was, was a bust. and But then guys like Tim Couch and guys like uh, Joey Harrington took five, six years before it was clear that he wasn't very good. So uh, I don't know. I think if, if a guy is nice enough and you're, you got a good enough supporting cast around him, give him their chance to work things out. But if they're just epically, colossally bad like Ryan Leaf was in that first year, I would have a pretty short leash on him. RG3 has not yet crossed that barrier where I think he, he is definitely a bust. I think he should get another chance somewhere. Somewhere that doesn't hate him for reasons I don't quite understand. I know he's a douche, but everybody works with douches and they have to make it work. So I don't understand why that should be any different at the NFL level. Is Aaron Rodgers not as good as we think or is Skip Bayless or as we think he is, or is Skip Bayless crazy? Skip Bayless is crazy. Aaron Rodgers is a great, great quarterback. I want to talk about the Michael Jordan comments that people seem to get on. Scott Tolzien said it was like watching Michael Jordan in his prime, and I think he's right. One of my biggest pet peeves in sports right now is that nobody's allowed to be compared to Michael Jordan, that they seem to craft that he was perfect. And Michael Jordan was great, His statistics prove that, but he was not perfect, and that's the thing that bothers me. They won almost all of their championships in six games. Now, they they were in control of all those series, but people remember so much of the Bulls, and they remember how Jordan ended with the the um, the Bulls and the last six complete seasons he played ended with championships but that taints the fact that he was completely owned by the Celtics and Pistons for the first half of his career he played really good at the end but he was far from perfect and he's gotten so mythologized now I think that's the word but anyways he's got a mythos about him that retroactively we have decided that he was the greatest player in history and nobody ever got close he was Maybe the best, greatest basketball player of all time, but he had a tremendous supporting cast. The Eastern Conference, when he was dominating it, wasn't anywhere close to as good as the Western Conference, so he had to only play one team instead of having to play a ton. And so I think Michael Jordan is put up on this pedestal where people freak out if anybody's compared to him. I think it's very fair to compare the way Aaron Rodgers has played to Michael Jordan. He hasn't gotten the championships there, but believe me, if he'd had a best of three against Seattle or the Giants, he would have a lot more championships. Uh, So Jordan didn't have to be perfect to win championships because of a best of seven series, and he lost a lot of postseason games, and he lost a lot of them in the finals. And so I think Jordan is great, and Skip Bayless is an idiot, and I haven't heard anything he's said since about 2009 because he's a moron, and the only reason he's on the air is to get people riled up like I am right now. And so it's best to just completely ignore him. And I I would ignore ESPN altogether, quite frankly. I've already bashed DraftKings and FanDuel, and I bashed Bud Light, so why not bash another key NFL partner, and that's ESPN. They don't have very good sports coverage anymore. It's all just to inflame people. It's the most narrow-minded talking points. You're better off reading a bunch of different online sources. My current go-to has been uh, 
Pro Football Talk with Mike Florio, I think, is really good. And some of those affiliated sites are really good. Deadspin is fun. <laughs> I always go to that. And then just whatever kind of comes across on uh, my news feed and in Google News. A- avoid the Bleacher Report at all costs, though, for, for the most part. They have a couple guys who are okay, but yuck. Yeah, Skip Bayless is dumb. Is Nick Foles any good, or was it Chip Kelly's system? <sighs> I think time will tell on that. It's too early to call him a bust, but it certainly looks like 2013 was the ultimate one-hit wonder, and maybe that was just the charmed year for average quarterbacks because he had that insane season, and that season made Josh McCown a lot of money too with his 13 touchdowns and one interception that he had during the season. Um, Chip Kelly's system, I think, can work. We'll see what happens going forward with Sam Bradford, but Foles was really good in that system and Sanchez probably was his best individually that he's ever been in that system so I think it was a good combination and I don't know why Chip Kelly bailed on it so fast especially for Sam Bradford of all people who has not proven anything and again I'll say that Sam Bradford is not yet definitively a bust they should have let it ride. I don't know why you get rid of a quarterback who had 22 touch or 27 touchdowns, two interceptions, and then five pretty good games last year, gets injured, and then you decide you've had enough of them for somebody like Sam Bradford. That's one decision that I don't think will ever make sense to me. So I think they needed each other. Sometimes two systems are just better together. Ask Brett Favre and Mike Holmgren that. Uh, so we'll see uh, which one is better, but I think they needed each other, and they should have let it ride longer. Will Jerry Kramer ever make the Hall of Fame? I think he will, but I don't think he'll live to see it, unfortunately, to put a nutshell uh, around what I said earlier. Thoughts on Ken Stabler, Frank Gifford, and Lindy Infante, also from Daniel Johnson. Um, Kenny Stabler, I thought, was a great character. I wish there were more Kenny Stablers in the modern NFL. I miss quarterbacks that would just take chances throwing downfield. And for as big of a douche as I think Jameis Winston is, that's part of the reason why I hope he's successful because the NFL needs more. uh, They need more Jameis Winston-type players and Eli Manning-type players than they do more Alex Smiths and Ryan Tannehills and guys who are just boring and terrified to throw interceptions and in turn never get first downs and are never that good. I want guys who are terrible when bad and guys who are fun to watch when good. And... That's certainly Kenny Stabler. I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. His numbers just aren't good enough. And he's, he, he played on some great, great teams, but they, were, they weren't as good as the other great teams in that era, like Dallas or like the Miami Dolphins or like the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And he doesn't have the stats like Fran Tarkington does. But he certainly deserves to be remembered as a really fun personality and a mad bomber quarterback of a really good team. Frank Gifford. I have no memory of Frank Gifford, obviously, as a player. There's almost no footage, uh, game footage of, of his career, but he's great. He's one of my favorite commentators, and I grew up with the Dan Deardorff, Frank Gifford, and Al Michaels Monday Night Football booth. I know that we're supposed to think that the best Monday Night team ever is um, Frank Gifford and Don Meredith and Howard Cosell, and they're really good too. I have some games from that era, and they're also really good, but Frank Gifford is just, he was a really good personality. He was kind of like the, he was just a soft-spoken, smart guy in the booth, and uh, 
yeah, I, I wish I would have seen more because I've heard some great things about him. But yeah, I was definitely sad to see him go. And all of these guys, obviously, you're sad to see any of them go. But uh, yeah, Frank Gifford, I'll remember him as the Monday Night Football commentator. And uh, yeah, um, that's that's how he'll be remembered for for ge- my generation, people who are around 30 years old and have been watching NFL football for about 20 years. That's how we think of Frank Gifford is that guy. And Lindy Infante. So Lindy Infante is always going to have a special place amongst longtime Packer fans. 1989 is about as fun of a season as it gets. Completely unexpected. Every game came down to the wire. We won most of them. You had a bunch of players who never did anything and would never do anything again come together and just be really good. And it was fun. It was not sustainable. His system did not match the, the talent he had in Green Bay very well. But... Yeah, I I think he deserves to be remembered for maybe the beginning of the comeback for the Packers. And it's certainly Ron Wolf and Brett Favre were the ones to do it. But that 1989 team gave hope that, hey, maybe it could be done. And you wonder what would have happened to his career had Don Mikowski not suffered that injury in 1990. And he maybe was mistreated by the Packers. I don't necessarily think so, but he probably thought so. And he was able to destroy the 1996 Packers in the preseason, in the RCA Dome, and then beat the eventual NFC champion Packers at the RCA Dome with a terrible team, an 0-10 team, and really the most embarrassing loss, perhaps, of Holmgren's entire run at uh, in Green Bay. So he had the last laugh in some small consolation prize type way. But yeah, he'll be missed, and I'll certainly remember him as a Packer coach. Chris Stanzel then. So thank you, Daniel, very much for your uh, uh, for your contribution to the show. Really build me out. Gave me a lot to talk about, and I'll try to come back to some of the other ones you asked about. Chris Stanzel had some comments. He was our on the he was our on location uh, reporter for Green and Gold Forever, and he said he was at the game yesterday. First game at Lambeau since 2010. It was great to be among Packer fans again. Man, how I've missed it. The renovations to the Hall of Fame, and the stadium look great. I can't wait for my next trip there. My thoughts on the game. It seems like this team is missing Jordy with his deep threat abilities. While this current crop of receivers is very good, it just seems that they can't get open for elongated stretches. I think once Devontae Adams comes back, I think that problem will subside. Um, Real quick before I continue on with uh, Chris's comments, I hope you're right, and we talked about that a little bit earlier in the show. But we'll see. Um, uh, From the Aaron Rodgers press conference yesterday, I think he thinks that Devontae Adams is their best shot to be able to get a deep game again, so we'll see if he's right. Uh, back to Chris's comments. St. Louis played a lot of single high coverage. I could only imagine how bad they would have bur- been burned if Jordy or Adams was in, even with the Rams secondary still got burned. Obviously the story right now is this defense. The potential they have is sky high right now. And these young, you, ugh, I can't talk. These young corners have me giddy. The pass rush is doing great as well. Yeah, they gave up their long plays, but they made up for it. Once the offense gets rolling again, this team can beat anyone. And I think that's a great point. And maybe, some caution as well as some optimism. I don't think there's any way that this offense stays this bland for the rest of the year. And I think once they get Devontae Adams, that they'll be able to start doing some of the more familiar Packer offensive things. On the flip side, I think there's little chance that this defense is as good as they were the last two weeks for the whole season. They're going to get exposed and people are going to find ways to attack these young guys and they're going to find ways to adjust to that pass rush up the middle but they don't have to be this good all the time you don't have to only give up 10 points a game or three points a game you just have to be able to play well 
and give the offense some chances. So it, there'll be some give and take. I don't think there's any chance this team goes undefeated, but I think they can get to 6-0. and uh, I am looking forward to further tests of this offense. And I think that, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll know more about the Chargers tomorrow, but it will be interesting to see who will be able to give them that test because there's a lot of uncertainty not only in Green Bay but around the rest of the NFL. But I'm pretty confident that the Packers aren't going to be holding teams to 10 points for the, the duration of the season. So I really don't have much else. I'm glad everybody uh, uh, looked at the Facebook page and a couple of you were able to offer me some things to talk about. I am starving. I didn't get a chance to eat today. I had a really busy day at work, and so I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you, everyone, for participating and listening to the show. If you want to participate yourself and give some comments on some of the things I said, as you've seen, if you've gone to the Facebook page, we talk about anything and everything football-related. And... uh, No matter how detailed you want to get, it's a great place for those kind of discussions. Green and Gold Forever podcast on Facebook. You can go to the website, greengoldforever, that's the number four, dot podbean.com for our full archives and our other shows. Also, the KZ Radio Preview is back for 2015. I will be back on the air on Friday talking about the Chargers game as well as some other topics as they come about. Uh, That's KZ Radio, which is 92.9 in uh, Appleton and the Fox Cities. That is 104.3 in Green Bay or anywhere in the world at mykzradio.com. And uh, Corey Bend, I saw, just commented as we uh, were listening here, and he echoed what I said, that Skip Bayless is a professional troll, and any thoughts spent on him or what he says is a complete waste of time. And I should have read that way before I commented on that because that was a much more succinct version of what I said. So I agree completely, Corey, and I'm glad you're able to get that in before the show wraps. All right, on to San Diego. The Packers are wearing their throwback jerseys, which is one of the topics we are going to be talking about on KZ Radio, um, live from the studio, so you know. I think it's going to be fun to see the Packers in their throwback uniforms, and I think it's it's a little bit of the 1994 concept and the 1939 concept, uh, so that should be fun. All right, we'll see Melvin Gordon come by. I hope he has a really good career, but I hope he has a terrible game on Sunday. And uh, we'll see what... Well, I guess he could have a great game, and the Chargers could still lose, as we saw from Todd Gurley on Sunday uh, with the Rams. So the Packers might get to the bye week 6-0 and without having played their best football. How exciting is that? Maybe the only one of the undefeated teams where you can say that they clearly have not yet peaked, and that should give you even more confidence that this Packer team is going to be there all the way to the end. And believe me, the Packers might have some spots that they need to figure out, but they're in best, better shape than almost anybody else in the league, um, maybe even including the New England Patriots. So let's see how far this takes us, and I'm still – as confident as I ever was that this season could end with a Super Bowl title. So join us next week. Enjoy this weekend's games and uh, look for the Facebook page for Matt and my picks and then carry on any conversation that we have going there. Thank you for listening. And I hope it wasn't too bad here all on my own. Take care, everyone.